This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size, removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software that customers love. With thousands of in-depth tutorials and an active community, we provide the support you need. DigitalOcean stands out of the crowd due to its simplicity and high performance with no billing surprises. Try DigitalOcean for free by getting a $100 infrastructure credit at do.co slash seradio. Hello, this is Simon Crossley for Software Engineering Radio. Uh, today I'm speaking with uh, Simon Riggs about advanced features of uh, the Postgres database. Simon is a professional developer and consultant with lots of experience with a variety of database technologies. He's a regular conference speaker on database technologies and I first met him several years ago at a Postgres user group meeting where he's presenting some of the clustering and replication features that's committed to the Postgres database. Simon's continued to contribute major features to Postgres and as CTO of Second Quadrant Consultancy has built a team of developers and consultants delivering advanced Postgres implementations to enterprise clients. Uh, I hope that introduction does you justice uh, Simon, and welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Thank you very much. Postgres is widely promoted as the world's most advanced open source database. And today I'd like to talk in detail about some of those advanced features. Um, but first, could you please summarize the ways in which you think Postgres is more advanced than other databases? Sure. Well, I think the uh, the first and foremost feature is that it follows the SQL standard extremely closely. Now, that may not seem uh, like the most advanced thing, but the, the standard is, is long and complex, and it takes a lot of work to, uh, to get us to, uh, to match that closely. But in general, Postgres has got broad and very deep feature support across a whole range of different uh, use cases. And um, it's my view that uh, Postgres is is more than just a relational database, and I'd like to explain that to you if uh, if we go in that direction. A couple of other things I'd like to mention as to why we're the most advanced: the Query Planner, and in general, uh, performance is very advanced in Postgres. For example, there are six different types of index available with Postgres, m many more than most other databases. And Postgres also invented the partial index and expression indexes, both of which are very useful for performance. Postgres is also very extensible. We pretty much invented that thought. Uh, and that brings in a, a whole sort of vast array of add-ons that you can get with Postgres that um, you know other, other people uh, need to, to add themselves to the core engine, whereas Postgres can just expose an interface to allow people to add their own things. Okay. But the last one is actually ease of use, uh, which is a strange one because, um, you know, some people would say uh, in the past it was hard to install and that kind of thing. But the main thing with Postgres really is it just works. And uh, we design things in a way that 
causes the least surprise for developers um, and we also go to a lot of trouble to ensure it's robust and accurate. For example, a couple of years ago we discovered that there'd been some minor, minor error in uh, the accuracy of one of the functions and I think there was sort of 10 decimal places uh, into the results there was uh, some weird error and we spent a lot of time fixing that. Now, that kind of attention to detail is what makes Postgres the most advanced because it takes time and it takes love and care, really, to to make the feature set full and complete. Yeah, that's definitely uh, something we can appreciate. And um, and I know that you've personally spent a lot of time doing that and, and the team of people. And th- thanks for that excellent list. I think, you know, that'll give us a, a good structure for our conversation. So let's uh, start at the top and th- let's return to some of the uh, features of the of the SQL standard, which you said Postgres uh, has good support for. Um, yeah, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with the select, select statement, um, but there are lots of uh, more advanced features, SQL, that maybe they, they're not that familiar with. What are the things that Postgres supports that developers might be unfamiliar with but could be useful for them in their, in their work? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's some interesting additions to the SQL language that uh, people are just simply not familiar with. Obviously, people have heard of things like joins and subselects between tables, yeah. but uh, we've extended uh, the insert command, which uh, allows you to uh, implement uh, something that, uh, that does what's known as an upsert, in that it, it will attempt to do an insert, but if the row's already there, it will turn it into an update. So that's the, one of the first things. So instead of getting a, an unhelpful conflict error, your statement will just work? It will just work. And what's more important there is that uh, we spent quite a lot of time designing it in a way that means that it uh, will give you it's guaranteed to give you uh, an answer it doesn't just sort of whirl around forever uh, without deciding what to do so it's quite a subtle implementation and it took uh, actually multiple years to uh, to get that to work so that was uh, time well spent because it saves time for the user uh-huh. okay excellent so moving on from there, uh, my next point of call, I think, would be uh, window functions, uh, which is something that, uh, frankly, many people have never even heard of. Yeah. Uh, but, but a window function is, uh, is something that allows you to look at the results of a query in, uh, in an ordered way. For example, if you're looking at a time series and you want to look at the last three points on the time series, uh, then you need a window function. Now, a lot of people think that that's not possible in SQL, and it wasn't. In the early versions of SQL, it was quite a simple language. And SQL did, more than 20 years ago, receive criticism for some of the things it lacked. What people don't realize is that those things were added to the SQL standard, and Postgres has supported them for many years. So, for example, if you want to look at uh, a time series, you want to calculate a moving average over data, uh, if you want to look at a lag, these are all things that can be done in the SQL language and done not just, you know, we can barely touch them. I'm talking about implementing fully with, with decent optimization. Uh, so it's been been implemented for more than 10 years and it's been highly optimized. 
so you know that that's that's the the first thing and um, what are the keywords that that you would use to structure a, a window function in your sql statement so there's an over clause which allows you to calculate aggregates across uh, a window clause and then you can structure uh, things so that you can say what type of window it's going to be, whether it's a moving window or whether it's a, uh, a window that goes back to the beginning of the series. Um, so you might have a, a cumulative total alongside the total, for example. So you can list out a range of numbers with a, with a cumulative total alongside them. Or you could smooth out uh, your data across a number of different points as I said, to calculate moving averages and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of complex statistical functions built into Postgres, and, and that is one of the, the ways that we, uh, we support them. And so in your example of, the, of a, a time series and choosing the last three points, yes. you know, if, if, if my timestamp column is a series that I'm interested in, then I would, I, I would run my window over the timestamp time column and then perform some statistics or other calculations on the on the resulting sets. Yes, so the uh, the results there are actually called window aggregate functions and so you would for each row in the table you would access the sliding uh, window and then you'd calculate the the result of the aggregate across the sliding window. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, and please please don't ask me what the syntax is because I have to look <laughs> in the manual as well, right? But uh, that's not the point, is it? It's, uh, no. it's whether it uh, fully supports the standard and does so in a in a useful and um, performant way. And I think that in, importantly as well, it's the you know it's the code that a developer would have to write client side in order to to do that work. Um, and to do that work in a way that's performant and works over large data sets, it's um, you know that Postgres has that has that power, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Another example of how we uh, handle that is uh, there's a there's a thing called a with clause that uh, allows you to define a, what's called a common table expression. So that allows you to define a, a fragment of code that could be reused many times within your SQL. Obviously, that kind of thing makes it uh, much more sensible to write correct code, because if you have to have sections of code that are similar, you know, then that avoids mistakes. But the, uh, the interesting thing about the with subcommand uh, is that um, we support the with recursive uh, form, which is actually in the SQL standard. And what that allows you to do is to search uh, a network or a hierarchy. And quite surprising to many people is the fact that it, uh, that allows you to write graph queries inside Postgres. And most people believe that's not possible. And yet it is actually completely possible and not just possible, very well performant in that it's been fully optimized as well. So there's some some really impressive features in there that uh, that I use in production and in many many parts of the world. So how would I need to structure my data in order to be able to run a graph query recursively over that? Well, the, the main thing it uh, that's needed is uh, connections between the data elements. We don't impose a fixed structure on your data before mm -hmm. you can use a graph query, which some other 
approaches do require you to have a sort of strict structuring. So if you have the uh, the old uh, example from years ago was the uh, the employee table where employees have managers and their managers can have managers uh, and you and you can write a recursive query that sort of says uh, you know what's the, the the total salary of all the people in the in my department for example and you would start with you go out from there in a, in a graph moving from employee to employee and it isn't something where you, for each link, you need to write an extra join. You can actually do that recursively. So it doesn't matter how deep the hierarchy or the network is, you can still search it. So we're not limiting you to a particular sort of property graph model or something like that. You, you can use any sort of data. So it could be XML data or JSON data that's there and you're following links between data items. So and all of that would be fully supported. Oh, okay. And the, and the common table expression is when you when you say it's a it's a with clause. Yes. Um, I'm thinking that um, it's a definition of a, of a view within within your statement. Is that is that the right way of thinking about those? Uh, yeah, uh, especially when you're doing the uh, so the with clause is just a, a sort of a fragment of code that would be reused. But the with recursive, um, you have a starting point for the query and then an iterator that moves you to the next data item. Uh, again, these are very advanced features of SQL that most people don't know about, and Postgres fully supports. So yeah, yeah. excellent. Maybe maybe now is a good time to move on to the the broad and deep feature support because you specifically mentioned there that it's not just SQL yes. in the database and that sounds something uh, interesting that we should explore. So, so what's, uh, what's happened over the years is that uh, Postgres, because it's extensible, uh, it's actually been used as a, as a platform for development of, uh, of wider features. Uh, for example, GIS features were added by uh, the PostGIS project and that's all been done by using the extensibility features, user-defined functions, user-defined data types, various types of indexing that have been added. And as a result, the, the post-GIS package implements the, the, the full GIS standard uh, for use within Postgres. Uh, so Postgres when you plug that in, becomes a GIS database as well. But there's there are similar uh, sort of use case packages in full text support, other document support, uh, and we're we're also now realising that um, Postgres actually already has graph support, and we're adding time series capabilities um, uh, as well by the, the the fairly recent partitioning support that's been added. So the, uh, the the functionality really doesn't just go in one particular direction; it covers a whole range of use cases. Uh, and that was what makes it a very useful general purpose database because if you've got a database and it has a little bit of graph, a little bit of GIS, some text, some normal relational features, it can accommodate all of that all at once in the one application without you needing to uh, resort to sort of microservice architectures. So what kind of uh, features, what kind of functions could I perform with you know, a GIS database? I mean, it's really to do with viewing uh, 
maps and and map data so the uh, the post gis package maps the world as if it was coated onto just a flat surface and then you can look at things in terms of uh, sort of bounding boxes and lines between um, nodes and things like that so it's actually extremely complex the support it's it goes well beyond what your average database person would imagine Um, and it's actually a, a, a real sort of world contender now uh, it's used for extremely complex GIS applications. Basically, there's a whole industry out there of uh, of people looking at uh, geographic factors, and they they store everything in uh, in PostGIS. So it's it's got a a wide domain, um, and and very often there's not much crossover. And and can I build indexes using geometric features and make that performance? Uh, yeah, that's one of the uh, uh, the great things here. Actually, there's uh, there's multiple types of index that you can build uh, um, for for that. So there's uh, the equivalent of R tree support, um, which um, is pretty useful, and then there's a, a KD tree that we can use. So the there's actually multiple styles of index which have different properties depending on what types of things that you're looking to optimize whether you're trying to optimize search time or whether you're trying to minimize the size of the index or uh, optimize for maintenance of the index for example these are all things that you can sort of select your choice of index type depending on your use case Sorry, it's so complex, right? Yes, <laughs> that's the yeah. uh, that's the thing I'm trying to get across, really. So, uh, and that's all kind of through the post GIS extension. That that's how those those features are added into the database, and a similar set of features for for temporal data and and for the other other additional types. Yeah, so we did actually have the text, uh, full text stuff as a, as an external package, but uh, some years ago that was uh, brought directly inside uh, the server core. So we now we've got full text support actually in the server core. But um, the the indexing that I was describing there, the index types are part of the core server, but some of the implementation exists in in the external packages. So we, for example, there'll be a an external package that implements a particular data type and then searches on that data type would be uh, would use the internal uh, index mechanisms but yeah I mean basically it's um, it's not just one database it's many databases because you can build the the types of support you need in and to give yourself a kind of integrated platform so I, I really think of it more as less of a database and more of a more of a data platform okay and the, and the full text support is that is, will that cope with um, free text and structured text or yes very much so we've got uh, a stemmer package uh, built into the uh, core uh, there's quite advanced uh, full text support you can set up dictionaries and stop word lists and there's there's quite a, an extensive range of features there it's it's by no means a a trivial sort of box tick feature it's uh you know it's the full deal really and and does that have a, a query interface that just slots into sql is there any special keywords that i need or to have access to well a lot of it is done via uh functions um the the actual configuration of it uh allows you to set up parsers and dictionaries 
and you can have uh, you know dictionaries in different languages and that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's actually a, a full and complex support, which also supports collations and that kind of thing. So I, yeah, it's uh, not something that I want to delve into uh, in in massive detail on a call. I mean, I could spend a whole call just on that topic, but uh, yeah. And it's it, are these extensions that you're talking about? Are these um, these are different from the foreign data wrappers? Yes. So the the foreign data wrapper is uh, is an API that allows us to uh, to write uh, access packages to other databases. Um, so, for example, there's packages written that will allow you to access MySQL or Oracle or um, you know very sort of generic JDBC data sources, and that will uh, if what you do there is you set up a thing called a foreign table, which is essentially a um, a, a stub. Uh, we access the stub, the SQL then gets passed through to uh, the remote server. It will execute a query and then bring data back to us. So that uh, that really allows Postgres then to become a, a kind of data hub across all the different uh, database types. And I know that that's quite popular with MongoDB who use the, the Postgres technology to, uh, to give you access to their own data store. That's really interesting. You used uh, the words data platform and data hub. You know, it's really extending the concept of a database. Well, I think that's really the uh, where we're going um, because, you know, the time was when you put stuff in a database, it just kind of sat there until you got it back out again. Um, now there's much greater requirement for it to do something useful. Um, in the age of business intelligence, um, you know, we need more from our from our data than just simply a storage mechanism. Uh, obviously, you know, you need to depend upon those basics of storage and and uh, you know high availability and backup and that kind of thing. But but working beyond that, it has to provide a a, a wider range of functionality to to fit in the the modern enterprise. Uh, there's there's too much going on to to uh, just store it and then bring it back again it's you know it's not enough just to do that anymore okay so you you uh, have features that you can help uh, process the data uh, as well you, you you mentioned you know the the query planner yes uh, as as being advanced you know if if you're handling all of these different types of data i can imagine you know you're putting some real um heavy loads on on the query planner being able to optimize queries in, in all these different scenarios yeah i mean that's uh that's interesting point um you might imagine that uh some of these things aren't fully or properly optimized well uh what we've also done as well as extend uh, the database so you can add user-defined data types but with those user-defined data types, you can also add into the database uh, statistics collection routines that are appropriate to those data types. Um, and so, as a result, you can write a, a query that says, you know, give, you know, give me all the data in that bounding box, and it's uh, it's all fully optimized. And um, you know, what we've done is just sort of ex extend the statistics system and the optimizer to cope with it. Okay, so as well as 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 well as extending the the types of data, you extend the 
the query planner and the optimizer to be able to to handle them as well. Yes, yes, by by uh, by extending the uh, support for uh, for new types of statistical data about those data types. That's um, that's really interesting. Um, and you've you've also talked about um, the different indexes uh, in here. So you, you mentioned a couple of indexes for uh, for the GIS um, data types. Um, is are there uh, particular uh, types of indexes that um, developers might not be aware of uh, to use in Postgres? Definitely. So the uh, the the basic uh, index type that everybody will be familiar with is the is the tree or B tree uh, index um, type. Uh, then people might also have heard of a hash index, uh, which uh, allows you to go straight to the data without sort of navigating the full tree. Uh, we've also extended that. Um, so if you've got uh, data that is uh, located by date or by number, you can use something called a block range index, which uh, is a, is a very small uh, index type. So it's, it's designed for very large data. Uh, we also support an inverted index called a GIN index, uh, and there's another two index types called a GIST and an SPGIST. And these, uh, the G in in all three of those uh, last. Uh, index types mentioned is um, uh, stands for generalized uh, and there's been a lot of research in the last 10 or 20 years about generalized search trees or generalized indexing mechanisms and uh, some of this uh, research to create these concepts was actually sponsored by the US government um, and that work has been taken and put into Postgres so as a result of that, we now support not just different types of index, but index mechanisms that can be further extended themselves. And that allows you to support multiple different kinds of structuring within an, in, uh, within an index that allows it to uh, work efficiently in, in different ways. Gosh, I'm not even going to try to explain some of those things on a call, but um, you know, the, the main thing is it gives you options uh, and you can use those options to make some good decisions about how to index different types of data. What would be um, a good use case then for, a, uh, for, for one of these generalized index types? Okay, so um, Postgres was actually the, uh, the, the the first database to implement something called nearest neighbor indexing. So if you, for example, were holding your mobile phone and you want to press it and say, show me the nearest coffee shop, you, you might think that that is, a, is kind of an easy type of query, but it, it turns out it's not. Uh, because you need a specialized index type that will cope with the... Uh, the fact that you're actually looking at things near you, not you know, rather than in a specific place. And Postgres was the first database to implement that type of query via an index. Previous to that, people used what was called um, bounding box uh, techniques, and they were at least 10 times slower. Um, so, so Postgres implemented that using an index. It's called nearest neighbor indexing. Okay, and and is that a calculation between two points? Exactly. Yeah, 
Um, so it sounds quite complex, but um, you know, the if I showed you the query of it, you'd go, oh, okay, yeah, that's pretty easy to write. <laughs> so basically, we just have um, uh, you know a column of that says location. We put the specialized kind of index on it, and then we just use a particular form of uh, where clause to retrieve the rows from it, and it works using an index rather than doing some kind of full data scan. Okay, that's interesting. So is that you're indexing with an expression? Yes, that's correct. So you can look it up. Basically, it's K nearest neighbor, or KNN indexing, uh, allows you to look at um, the data points that are nearest to you. And then obviously, you you know, you would put an extra filter of coffee shop on that in order to, to spread things out and make that into the, the search that I described. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. And are there other uses of expressions within indexes yeah i mean we support expression indexes as well so you can build uh, an index on you know the first 10 characters of a field say or you can um you know index um uh, well any expression that you can execute so, uh, so any function that would uh, retrieve a result from a column can be indexed so it's, uh, it's quite advanced functionality. And we also support partial indexing, which means you can index all of the rows that aren't null, for example, rather than having to index all of the rows in the table. So, so that can save, save space and improve search performance? Absolutely, yeah, exactly those two things, yeah. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software that customers love. DigitalOcean stands out from the crowd due to its simplicity, high performance, and no billing surprises. Join a community of over 3.5 million developers on DigitalOcean. Sign up with a free $100 infrastructure credit at do.co slash seradio. Obviously, indexes are, are you know core to making a database performant. Is there, is there anything else that we we should cover with indexes? Do you think? Um, well, I mean, there's uh, there's many other good features, but uh, I think um, some one long term guy at, um, at one of the other vendors uh, was asked a question on his retirement. If he'd have, if he could go back and spend more time on what would he spend time on, and he just replied indexes, right. And as a result, that makes me think we've done the right thing by having the the easily the uh, the widest and most complex set of index types of any any database, even even beating um, commercial. And and that's you know re referring back to this concept of these generalized indexes. And yeah. And their extensibility. Exactly. Yes. We we keep coming back to extensibility, and it sort of really does seem, you know, that, that Postgres Postgres core functions have been built from extensions over the years and, and pulling functionality in. Uh, are there other particular extensions that are, that are interesting and relevant at the moment? Well, I mean, there's, there's actually, a, what this creates is actually an ecosystem of tools for people that want to build uh, additional functionality in the system 
but they don't want to spend the time to bring it into the core server. I mean, we release on what was once regarded as quite an aggressive timescale of, of, of annual releases. But in, in terms of if you're trying to build an application, you can't submit something to Postgres, then just wait for the next release because that's basically 12 to 18 months. So if you want new functionality now in your system, you can build an extension and you can get it within one to three months. You can have that functionality built into your to your database. So it's it's a way of expanding the functionality of of the data platform but it's also a, a, a way of delivering that functionality in usable form for uh, applications um, so delivering it quickly as well but as i said what that's done is it's created a whole ecosystem of hundreds of uh, small tools and utilities and plugins all of which together make Postgres into a whole range of power, uh, sort of powerful different things. So it's not one thing, it's anything you want it to be. Okay. If, if, are these extensions difficult to write? Are they complicated interfaces that I need to understand to, to write one? Well, Postgres supports uh, quite a range of internal APIs uh, that you can have access to. A lot of the uh, extensions out there are open source, and so you can copy an existing one. So really what you need to work out is which APIs should you be using to provide this uh, additional functionality, and uh, you know how am I going to go about using that? Obviously, if you're building an extension that you expect thousands or millions of people to use, then you need to go to a lot more care in, in the development of it than you would do on a sort of single function uh, just for your usage. But So there's a whole range of uh, sort of emulation functions and uh, monitoring facilities. Um, for example, Second Quadrant um, publishes the, the, the multi-master uh, extension, BDR for bidirectional replication. Uh, and that is available now as uh, as just an extension to the database, so it just plugs straight in and away you go. Okay, so that's um, yeah, that that's obviously a, a, an advanced feature data replication going beyond just handling different types. Postgres performs that that job very well. Maybe to just describe the concepts behind the replication. Yeah, sure. So, so we support uh, a couple of different kinds of replication. Uh, the first kind is physical replication, where we actually take a copy of the transaction log and we uh, send that to another location. And by, by doing so, we're able to offer high availability. So if you stream that in real time to another server, then you can have the choice of uh, sending that asynchronously, meaning you commit your transaction and then you send the data somewhere else. Or you can do it synchronously, where the, the commit waits in a queue until your data has been sent to a, a secondary server and then it returns. Uh, so you get your choice of whether you want to add latency to give you protection guarantees or whether you want speed in in that the commit will come back to you quickly uh, but you don't yet know whether your data is safe and postgres actually does that um, in quite a clever way in that we allow you to make that choice at the individual transaction level so you can have some transactions that you consider important ones being committed synchronously and slightly less important ones you can have executing much faster asynchronously. 
So that's the, the, the physical replication. What we then do is when we ship the data to a secondary server, uh, we run that server as what's called a hot standby server. And you can actually execute queries on the standby nodes. And what you can do there is you can add as many standby nodes as you want to, to give you a full uh, server farm where you're able to execute uh, thousands and thousands of queries across the many different servers. So, so that allows you to, to effectively have an extensible cache uh, built of additional servers. We also support cascading replication, uh, which allows you to have those servers connect together so you can actually have a hierarchy of standby servers so to give you a full server farm what we also have is something that we've introduced in the last couple of years is called logical replication and this is where we only send the data changes not the whole transaction log uh, so the the first reason is that that saves bandwidth when you're sending it across region but the other thing is that the uh, the logical replication is much more flexible and we can actually use it as some kind of uh, real-time data pump to other applications in the enterprise. And most importantly, we can send it to other versions of Postgres. Uh, so as a result of this functionality, we're able to do a, a full online upgrade. So uh, a near zero-time upgrade zero downtime upgrade of your servers and obviously that's what people are looking for now is to never take their systems down okay so you can maintain availability because it's 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 a logical replication yes you can only physically replicate the transaction log between identical versions of of Postgres. That's correct, yeah. So even though it's quite an efficient replication mechanism, it's not one that works cross-version. And so if you want to publish data across to a, a remote site, you really would prefer the, the logical replication mechanism. But it's but it's because of its ability to go cross-version, it allows you to continuously upgrade every time there's a new major version come comes out you can upgrade fairly soon to that you don't have to wait three years for the for the next um, uh, sort of window of opportunity uh, which is what used to happen in the old days if i want to build a high availability system with a with a large amount of data in it you know what what kind of orders of magnitude of numbers in terms of database size and bandwidth what am I kind of looking at for the capabilities I need for my hardware? Well, I mean, things are, are very uh, efficient now. So well, uh, I would uh, not like to sort of throw, throw too many numbers at you. I can tell you some, some sizes of things, but it really does depend upon the hardware that you um, spend your money on as to, yeah. um, you know, to what kind of performance you're getting out of this. But um there are Postgres databases out there that um, uh, are above 50 terabytes on a single node. And, um, you know, it's very frequent to see databases above 10 terabytes or above a terabyte. So uh, I would have said that most of the customers that I deal with personally are, are systems above a, a terabyte in size. And they have extremely high transaction rates. Uh, I think that's the the other thing that's changed in in recent years. Is it isn't uncommon to see transaction rates 
uh, of more than a thousand transactions a second and in some cases you'll see above 10,000 or, or, or more and you know in in, um, in many cases so it's you know the amount of data flying around now is uh, is really quite extreme and it's difficult to get your head around the differences between sort of low um, low end transaction rate systems and, and the very highest transaction rate systems um, that there are people out there that are really pushing the barriers back of, of what's possible. Is that where you would need the, the farm of services in order to really uh, get the optimum use from, from Postgres in those scenarios? Do we look at paralyzing queries and things like that to get those to run? Yeah, so uh, so parallel query currently uh, with with core Postgres operates only on a single node. So if you've got sort of four or eight CPU systems, then you can get some decent parallelism going on those single nodes. Um, in terms of uh, Postgres operating across multiple servers, you'd need to be looking at something like Postgres Excel before you could um, operate across multiple nodes. So it's 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 a few years yet before core Postgres itself will uh, will provide that functionality. But again, there's you know there's there's different uh, versions of Postgres and different packages that you can get that enable that type of functionality. Okay, interesting. And um, is that replication something that is being actively developed at the moment? Are there are there changes uh, in future releases? Yeah, I mean we've uh, we've just made a load of changes in Postgres twelve that relate to uh, uh, how the configuration uh, works, and the, there's been pretty continuous change in the replication functionality over the years. I mean the streaming replication uh, feature went in in um, 2010 uh, and then there was a sort of big surge of work after that but actually um, the amount of change has, has stayed fairly constant it's um, what I think is surprising is that um, or, or maybe it's not surprising but um, because people are using it heavily in production they've got lots of small requirements for performance changes and things like that so I, for example i uh, about uh, 18 months ago i spent a lot of time myself working on uh, replication latency um, and we um, removed uh, sort of various bottlenecks that were occurring there each of those things takes quite a lot of work but um, you know obviously it's um, what you might call polishing work rather than um, you know initial feature development, but it can still be very complex. So there's I, yeah, there's lots of uh, things still going into Postgres. It, it really, uh, I think that's the surprising thing when you when you call it the most advanced relational, uh, most um, most advanced database. You would think that we you know would be feature complete, but it's actually the opposite way around. The more users we have, the more demand there is for new features. Right. <laughs> Your work will never finish. Uh, yeah, it looks that way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> and and we we talked about some very advanced, you know, use cases there, some very high volumes, high transaction rates. Um but uh, back at the beginning you you mentioned, you know, that Postgres is easy easy to use. Yes. You know, in, in, in install and use. So is is that is that a journey from your from your first install to um, you know the uh, the multi-node server farm? Um, you know, is that can you talk us through what that journey might look like and steps on the way? Well, I, I think 
you know, especially with the replication stuff, I know that uh, people go will say, "Oh, replication is really complex." But believe me, we've simplified it a lot from the way uh, other vendors have uh, implemented it. So, for example, in order to make your application synchronous, you only have to uh, touch one parameter to change that, and the number of replication parameters overall is relatively relatively small. So, you know, what you need to do to um, uh, to get the servers to work together is um, you just set up a, a node with the software on it and then you can uh, launch uh, what's called a base backup to copy the initial server. Yeah. And then you, then you start it up and it will begin talking to the master node and it will bring across all of the changes and it will just continue to work. So these things... Um, you know, I mean, obviously, we have made it even simpler over the years. But in essence, we designed it from the from the very uh, first go that it was going to be as simple to use as possible, and with with very few parameters and commands. Uh, and I think we, you know, we have achieved that. Obviously, as more people add complexity, the parameters emerge. But in order to build up a whole server farm, you basically just point the standby nodes at the master uh, and then begin flowing the data across and these days that is just a, a single command in order to get it to uh, to begin the, the 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 backup and begin the um, sending of the transaction log okay and if I had you know a, a 10 terabyte database or something and I, and I wanted to replicate that you know that's obviously gonna take some time even with a, a very high bandwidth connection you know, what sort of um, monitoring uh, would I would I need to have in place would how would I know that I was caught up and in sync or if I was ever falling behind yeah so uh, I think that's one of the things that's taken longest to uh, to build in is actually the decent uh, monitoring facilities uh, but we do have the capability now to to manage uh, and monitor the uh, the replication lag. Um, we can measure that uh, as a as an amount of time or as an amount of bytes. We don't actually yet have uh, something that predicts how long it will take to do the uh, the full backup and start. But that is something that uh, I actually um, wrote the spec for just today. In fact, so uh, that uh, I never believe a progress bar anyway. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I mean, that's the that's the funny thing. I mean, obviously, as we're sitting here discussing it, uh, you know, everybody's got the same feeling about progress bars and not not trusting them. Uh, and that's why, you know, we we wanted to, um, you know, if we do this, we have to, you know, do it properly. We can't just have something that kind of kind of sort of works when you squint. <laughs> so. yeah. OK. And is there anything else that you wanted to include in uh, sort of ease of, ease of use? Well, you know, I think uh, robustness is ease of use. Uh, you know, if something breaks all the time or, or just gives you strange messages, then that's very frustrating. So so robustness is um, and dependability means that you can hit your deadlines, you can trust the software. Uh, accuracy means that, um, you know, you can always trust that we've done the right thing. We haven't truncated your data or sort of set it to null in weird circumstances or something like that. And when you when you go to use a feature, you can also trust that it's been implemented in, in complete form. And, and as a result of that, you can actually use it, um, you know, with a with a good level of trust. 
security these days is also uh, a big feature, but I'd really call that an ease of use feature because if something doesn't have security, then that, uh, you know, then you have to go to some level of difficulty to isolate it so that uh, it can stop it from being attacked. Uh, whereas with Postgres, you know, you've got that um, level of trust there that we've, you know, we've done a lot for you in terms of security. So. And what kind of features would you uh, include in, in security? Yeah, so, I mean, we've, uh, you know, we've recently updated uh, the authentication technology to uh, to 256-bit uh, encryption. Uh, that's pretty advanced. Um, that's called Scram, uh, and it uses a, a, an underlying API called Sazzle. Um, so what we've done there is we've uh, we've implemented the very latest technology, but also implemented it using the API that will allow us to to keep up to date as much as possible with that uh, technology as it evolves. Okay, and so that's um, that's an authenticated access to to the database. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We uh, we also implement something called host-based authentication, uh, which is basically allows you to whitelist or blacklist different uh, addresses or IP ranges and that kind of thing. So it really allows you to control the level of security that you've uh, you've got in the system. And if somebody, for example, act, tries to access the system with uh, a user ID that doesn't exist, we don't reply with things like user ID does not exist, because obviously that's, you know, information to the to the person trying to to hack the system. So we go to a lot of trouble to to make that look like it's a valid user, but you just didn't know the password, uh, for example. So OK, yeah, that makes complete sense. Good. Um is there anything else that you would uh, particularly like to mention? We've covered a, a, a lot in, in this conversation, but I'm sure there's a lot more. Yeah, um, well, I think the, uh, you know, there's a couple of things out there. We've got um, very well thought out support for, for time zones, um, good internationalization support, and we also support uh, something called serialization which is um, a mode that allows you to trust that the uh, the data in the database makes uh, makes a lot of sense, uh, what's called transaction isolation. There are various access problems that people are simply unaware of uh, that databases go to a lot of trouble to, to get right. And if you just access a data store that's got no... Um, no thought given to to the transaction isolation modes, then it it does make it harder to use because you get strange problems with you know numbers that don't add up and you know data that appears to have disappeared and phantom reads and that kind of thing. Got, there's some strange anomalies. So these these would be when there are concurrent modifications being made to the database. Exactly so. Yeah, the the basic physics of it because if you've got you know, data's in two places. If you look at the, the the first data location and read what it says, and then you come back and then you go to the second data location, well, obviously, during that pause, the first data location can have changed. And you can get into a sort of strange situation where you, if you try and add up the values in two separate locations, uh, you can end up with a value that never existed in the database at the same time, for example because you're looking at one and then you're looking at another. Yeah. 
and so there's quite a lot of support in the database for levels of care with that so obviously if we're handling money for example you don't really want to be looking at your bank accounts and have them not add up for example right so that's a, a pretty serious situation uh, and that's if if you access data in a in a pretty simple data store, then you don't get that level of coverage. You, know, you don't get that level of protection. So we go to a lot of trouble to explain the types of sort of physics uh, data anomaly that can exist and and what you should do about it. And when when we were talking about replication, um, the you could control how the data was replicated at the transaction level. Are there, are there controls in place for different transaction isolation levels? Yeah, I mean, so within the database, you can specify the uh, the type of transaction isolation level you wanted at the transaction level. Uh, so you can specify it for the whole database if you want, but uh, you can actually request different levels depending on the type of uh, data manipulation that you're planning. Obviously, making that work across nodes uh, is significantly harder, and that is something that we're working on right now. But, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a, an important thing for the future. Uh, the, the only problem is that physics is against us there because there's various theorems that say that you can't, you can't have it both consistently and quickly. Yes. And, uh, yeah. I've always thought of uh, Postgres as being uh, the database that would provide you with the consistent answer and the accurate answer. Yeah. And is 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 that right, or is that again something that's tunable? Well, it, it's that that is our hope by default. That was always the default we would pick. But we recognise mm -hmm. there are times when you really do need it to go faster, and you might be able to prove that your transactions are in fact correct for some reason, and so you're happy to turn things to a uh, to a, you know sort of potentially less safe option uh, for me i think it's important to have that user control over performance v robustness and consistency i think that's quite an important lever to say look i need it quick damn it as against look i really i need it as slow as it gets it's just got to be correct right yeah yeah and and a whole range of options in between and now, I, I mean, you know, managers can be sometimes, you know, say, no, no, I want it, you know, tomorrow and 100% correct. And, you know, it's like, well, you can't have both, right? So, but, you know, so that's why we want to give people a whole range of different choices for their performance and robustness. And, and that's the direction that we've been taking Postgres in, uh, is, to, is to give you the robustness by default, but the option to choose sort of how much robustness, whether it's one node uh, robust or whether that's copied to, to multiple nodes before we consider it safe or the other way, which is to increase the performance at the expense of robustness. It's interesting. The, um, and that sounds like it's something that's been actively developed at the moment. Are there any other features that we should uh, look forward to coming in the, in the near future? Well, I think there's uh, there's a couple of things that are really worth mentioning uh, along the way that um, people don't always understand. I think in the early days of relational databases, when you 
wanted to do something like add a column to a table, it would lock the whole table for like an hour while you uh, added the column. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why uh, the NoSQL guy is going to said, oh, no, like, don't do that. You just want a JSON blob and you can do anything you want there and you never need to do schema upgrades. And, and that at that time, that was a sensible thought. Well, what we've done in the interim is we've spent a long time minimizing the lock levels that you need on, on your DDL commands. And as a result, there are uh, very few cases now where we lock the whole table. You can add indexes concurrently. You can add columns in just a single metadata operation that takes no time at all. So there's a lot of flexibility now built into uh, to Postgres using experience running as a you know 24/7 operational system. So it's not the type of thing where people say you know you'd better take the database down at 5 p.m. and and do that now. Um, you know, we almost all of our systems are, are, are running 24-7, you know, even on Christmas Day. Right. And what I would say is that uh, in the rush up to Christmas, you'd probably be uh, uh, amazed at exactly what percentage of the world's transactions actually run through a Postgres database uh, as part of the uh, the primary payment cycle. So when you're buying something for your loved ones this Christmas, just think about how many of those transactions are running through Postgres, and it's quite a surprising number. Uh, we're, we're talking uh, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, annually flow through Postgres databases uh, because the financial services industry trusts it. Wow. Okay. I think on that, that note, that's that's... That could be a good place to finish. Where can where can our listeners go to find out more about Postgres or, uh, and the features that we've been talking about today? Well, postgresql.org is the website to visit, or if you look up uh, Postgres, you'll find pages uh, on the open source project and all of the commercial companies around it. But come to conferences. Uh, that's a great place to discuss your data needs um, there's users giving presentations uh, there's people listening to things and people chatting about their what they need out of all these technologies so it's uh, it's always good to uh, come and join in the community well simon uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and um, for software engineering radio this is simon crossley thank you for listening thank you very much Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.